Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. I like to think that we might be able to cultivate a democracy of the imagination in which each individual practitioner, each individual uh, Buddhist community is empowered not just to, um, to, to, to do certain practices or, or master certain philosophies, but also to imagine the Dharma in another way, both for the individual and also for the society itself. And in our, our own world, we find that we very often find that uh, inspiration and, uh, and meaning are less present for us in uh, static uh, icons and religious um, archetypes, and more found in the dramas of uh, theater and music and novels and films. Um, again, I feel that we, in the practice of the imagination, we will evolve forms that we would now consider um, maybe secular, uh, novelistic, or, what, or whatever. But through novels, for example, and I read a lot of novels, uh, and I'm very, very suspicious of the notion of Buddhist fiction or Buddhist art. I think as soon as you uh, label that artistic process as Buddhist, you have more or less killed it. That I feel a more useful way to think of this is to recognize that pretty much in all great artistic accomplishments, we find the world revealed to us in a new way that very often allows us to see precisely those elements that the Buddha asked us to pay attention to, impermanence and death, the tragedy of life, um, the beauty of things, 
the insubstantiality of things, how a character in a novel is constantly evolving and changing and adapting and learning. There's not a sort of a fixed self or ego that remains static through the story, but in the course of the story evolves and learns and adapts and changes. So a democracy of the imagination would be one in which the the mythological language um, would be brought down to earth and incarnated in individuated narratives. And this might liberate not only the creative impulses of each individual, but also of communities of practitioners, um, of sanghas, to envision afresh how they might tell the story of their own unfolding. Now, my brother um, is an artist. He, He lives and works in London. And over the years, his partners um, have tended to be art historians or curators. And this has made me very aware of the distinction uh, between those two roles. Many years ago, in fact, the first book I, I uh, published was the, the translation of Shanti Deva's uh, Bodhicari Avatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I spent, in my early 20s, five years, as I learned Tibetan, uh, translating this text, you know, verse by verse. It's probably one of the most important things I ever did in my Buddhist practice. I was able to get very close, I feel, to the voice of this extraordinary uh, poet, teacher, philosopher, who we call Shantideva. But what arose out of that was an inspiration to be able to write something like that myself, rather than to become a learned commentator or expert on the Bodhicari Avatara. In other words, um, my question is, do I want my Dharma practice to be like the practice of an artist, or do I want my practice to be one like that of an art historian or a curator? And I have to confess that for me, I see my practice of the Dhamma as a practice of art. And I mean that in every way possible. That my uh, experience I see as, as the raw materials for my art. I see my meditation practice, my study of Buddhist philosophy, my practice of writing um, and so forth as ways of, uh, of reimagining my own experience, of transforming my own experience into a new way of being and responding to this world. Another practice that I've been doing over the last 20 years is, uh, is work in collage. And this started... Um, basically by an interest in uh, noticing the things that our society and our culture dismiss and reject. In other words, litter, 
and rubbish. And I've start, I've, I do this continuously. I, I've started training myself to notice, like, for example, that piece of paper on the ground over there. I collect this stuff. I actually, just after lunch, I found a wonderful piece. <laughs> this is a piece of um, sticky tape, plastic, that was on a notice board out in the campus. Um, and it's got an incredible texture, a wonderful uh, uh, coloration, which I will glue onto a white piece of card, and then I'll organize and arrange that in ways to create a kind of a mosaic, a kind of a, a, a formal composition. And this, again, I see as part of my Dharma practice. I see it as um, a way of exploring how the, the neglected and the abandoned and the dismissed and the ugly and litter can be recovered and transformed into what might be perceived as a piece of beauty, of something which has transcended its litter nature and become something else. I see my own writing very much in this same light. Um, I'm not so much interested in a, 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 a rather linear developmental narrative um, I'm interested in uh, juxtaposing ideas and stories, a uh, little bit like William Burroughs' cut-up technique. In other words, really fascinated by how things go or don't go together. Um, I'm fascinated by how bits of color and this sort of textures, te textured materials, when put in juxtaposition one with the other, bring out something new. The Dhamma, as I understand it, um, is a, a body of impersonal ideas and values and practices, again like bits of stuff, that are creatively reimagined over time and brought into a different set of configurations. We have to remember that shortly before the Buddha died, um, he said on, on two or three occasions, um, and I'll just quote one of them, this is from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he says, after my death, Ananda, do not think you will not have a teacher. The Dhamma will be your teacher. Um, the Buddha could have used the word guru, but he didn't, at least in the Pali materials that I feel that what was very distinctive about his approach is that he didn't see the teacher as an authority figure um, who imposed a kind of doctrine or orthodoxy on the students, but rather the teacher was a kalyanamita, a good friend, whose purpose was to lead the student into the Eightfold Path. And one of the characteristics of entering the Eightfold Path is that you become autonomous in your practice. You become aparapachaya, independent of others in the teaching. And that is a term, again, not widely spoken of in much Buddhist literature, but one, I think, that renders the Buddha's teaching as a path of, 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 of autonomy and independence. So for me, the practice of the Dharma 
has very little to do with adopting a set of metaphysical beliefs, and it has everything to do with applying a set of injunctions. In other words, Buddhism is not something that we learn to believe, but Buddhism is something that we learn how to do. So I've spent a lot of time in the last years trying to rethink what are called the Four Noble Truths as Four Noble Tasks. The, rather than thinking of, you know, life is suffering or there is suffering, the origin of suffering is craving, to look, as the Buddha himself says, at the conclusion of his uh, first discourse, that suffering or dukkha, I don't really like to translate this word, dukkha is something to be fully embraced, uh, craving or grasping is something to be let go of, the stopping of craving is something to be experienced for oneself, and the Eightfold Path is something to be created and cultivated. And that describes a process, a living process. Let's go back to where we began with the taking of a photograph, and how might this serve as an image of the practice of the four noble tasks. Opening your eyes to what is present, the first injunction of photography, I feel is very similar when extended to the totality of our life, to embracing dukkha, to being totally open to the experience of oneself and others, to be unflinching, to be totally honest in an awareness of what is actually going on, not only inside me here, but in this world that we share with others right now. The practice of the first noble truth is the practice of being totally open to uh, life itself. In the taking of a photograph, we try to let go of our habitual views and perceptions and cliched images. And in the same way, in the practice of the four noble tasks, we seek to let go of grasping and craving, greed and hatred and delusion. And the way I understand this is that in embracing dukkha, in being totally there with the world, that is actually the condition that, in a way, sees through the pettiness and often the absurdity of our attachments and our narcissism and our greed and our fear. The third step in the taking of a photograph is to release the shutter. In other words, to stop, click, and this, I think, is very similar to the stopping of craving, the stopping of grasping, even momentarily. I'm not thinking here so much of some final permanent state. But those moments when we find that that reactive patterning has stopped, it's like the pressing of the shutter, the decisive moment. And that's not an end in itself. That actually is the beginning of the path. So just as a 
pressing the shutter opens up an image of the world in a way that we've never quite seen it that way before, in the same way the stopping of grasping, of egoism, allows us to respond to the world in ways that we could not have anticipated or could not have foreseen. And that is a process that the Buddha encourages us to bring into being. The word is bhavana. Sometimes I think rather poorly translated as meditation or development, mental development is how Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it. But actually the word bhavana goes back to the root bur, which is to be, a cognate of the English word to be. Bhavar is being or existence. Bhavana means to bring something into being, to cultivate. And so the practice of the path is the cultivation of a way of life. And that cultivation of a way of life is rooted in those moments when we're not conditioned or determined by our greed, hatred, delusion, and so on. So in other words, the practice is a creative process. And the path that opens up is an unimpeded, empty space. Remember that for Nagarjuna, shunyata, or emptiness, is synonymous to the middle way itself. Emptiness is not some sort of abstract metaphysical idea, but actually it's talking about a way of being in the world in which we have emptied ourselves of what resists the emergence of another way of being in the world. In other words, greed, hatred, delusion, craving. The problem with these things is not that they cause suffering, although often, of course, they do, but I think more deeply, um, craving is a problem because it impedes or it uh, prevents the free, unimpeded movement of the path itself. Again, we can't say this in English, but really we should uh, use a word more like path-thing rather than the path. You can do that in Pali and Sanskrit. So awakening, therefore, is an ongoing process and not so much the achievement of a, some sort of transcendent mystical insight, although, of course, that could necessarily be an integral part of that process, but not an end in itself. And so these examples, I think, help us understand the Dharma as an art of the imagination that we're constantly challenged to respond to the world in ways that we could not perhaps have conceived in the past. We need freshness, we need originality, we need a kind of spontaneity to respond to life rather than feeling that as a Buddhist we have to behave in this way or that way or another way, a sort of a legalistic notion of this is the right way to behave. So the self, or the world, is a project to be realized, a work in progress, not something to be negated or denied. Uh, I, I think it's actually um, problematic to translate anatta as no self. I think it more correctly would be translated as not self. Uh, that the khandas, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, and so on, are not me. 
But that doesn't mean that I don't exist. What it points to is that the self is not a fixed thing that either does or doesn't exist, but the self, like the Dharma, like the elephant, is a living, organic, unfolding process. And to conclude, I'd like to uh, cite um, a verse from the Dhammapada, verse uh, 80, where the Buddha says, Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, Atanam Dhammati Pandita, the wise person tames the self, Atanam, accusative. In other words, the self is not denied, but the self is compared to a field, an arrow, a block of wood that can be worked on. It can be irrigated, it can be fashioned, it can be carved, it can be sculpted. And this to me is a, a wonderful um, image of how we might understand our practice. It's not about getting rid of me or the self. It's certainly about letting go of a certain fixed notion of self, but that allows us to open up to our experience as a process that is continuously unfolding, and our practice, like that of an artist, is the practice of irrigating ourselves, fashioning ourselves, shaping ourselves, and by implication, irrigating the world, fashioning the world, shaping the world. Atta and loka, self-world, are often used somewhat interchangeably. So that is really all I have to say. I hope I've stuck more or less to the theme. And we still have about 10 or 12 minutes in which I'd be happy to respond to any questions that you may have. Yes. I, I have a very simple question. I was wondering if you had practiced mix song or contemplative photography, and what are your thoughts on that practice? Mix song? Mix song, it means good eye. Mix song oh, right. photography. Mix song, yeah. Do I practice contemplative photography? Well, have you, and, and what are your thoughts on that practice? Well, um, I, did actually, I, was actually, I did actually see a book that was published by Shambhala recently on contemplative photography, and the author or authors of it, um, while it was still in the galley-proof stage, discovered that I also did photography, and they contacted me with the possibility of writing a blurb. And I, I looked at this book, and I was, very act I was very, very happy to see this, because I feel that although I wouldn't have used the word contemplative photography, yeah. that's basically what I was doing. Yes, that's, I suppose one would call it that. But I'm always a little bit wary of um, describing an artistic work um, in terms of some other discipline. But yes, I think what I've been saying... Um, would clearly uh, constitute a practice of photography that is deeply influenced by my Buddhist practice, that's for sure. But I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that that produces Buddhist art. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. You mentioned earlier that um, you know, Buddhism 
uh, each time it gets to a new culture, it adapts to the local culture mm-hmm. in terms of adaptation and assimilation. So uh, I noticed that historically speaking, Buddhism in each culture, there's a, for, for its progression and survival, there's a there's a monastic uh, tradition. Monastic tradition, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the United States and the West, given that it's still very new, um, do you believe that monastic, monasticism is still a necessity here in, in the West? I think it's... I mean, I can't really answer that question. I don't know. I think it's too early to say. But I do think we have to acknowledge that monasticism was a form that evolved in Asia um, to some considerable degree because of the social and economic conditions of uh, pre-modern Asian societies. Um, monastic institutions often like us to, uh, to, to, to pro- project the idea that there's something inherently spiritual about being a monk or a nun. I don't think that's true. Um, I've lived in monasteries as a monk, um, and I found that Buddhist monasteries are in many ways not places where the spiritual cream of the society is sort of ladled off. And, <laughs> but actually, uh, Buddhist monasteries are a microcosm of the society. Right. As people um, levitate and stuff. Sorry? As people levitate around and stuff. No, you actually find it's only a small minority within any <laughs> monastic institution who will actually be dedicated to, say, meditation. Um, I'm not sure that, I think the social and economic conditions of our time, the fact that we have general uh, education and we have considerable amount of leisure, um, the circumstances are so different today that I feel it's quite open to question as to whether Buddhism will need to perpetuate monastic traditions as a kind of uh, necessity for the survival of the Dhamma. One of the interesting usages uh, that one hears a lot is that um, it's often said that, you know, the the monks and the nuns are described as as the sangha. That's very common in Buddhist societies. But you never find that usage in the early canon. When the Buddha describes the sangha, he describes it in terms of what he calls the eight types of individuals. In other words, the stream entrant, the once-returner, the non-returner, and the arahant. In other words, the sangha is not defined by your lifestyle, by taking certain vows. The sangha is defined by the degree to which you have given your life to the realization of certain values, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the sangha. And the Buddha speaks of a fourfold sangha, monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. And I think it would be good to try to recover something of that early notion of sangha, um, and to see how, in our time, the, the needs of each practitioner can best be met. Do we need to have monastic orders, and does that somehow give you some advantage or not? Um, I think that's um, an open question. I don't have an answer. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you about the concept of identifying oneself as a Buddhist and what that means in relation to your perspective on letting go of the beliefs as the definition of practice. And I, I... 
I don't like to identify myself as a Buddhist. I don't, that's, I'm kind of here despite it being called Buddhist geeks rather than because of. Um, but I, just, I love the practices. I, I think I'm as enthusiastic a practitioner as anybody. Mm. But it took me quite a while to find a teacher who really worked for me, which was Shinzen Young. Mm. And I really like your approach and how you describe it about not emphasizing beliefs and emphasizing a form of art and practice and something very fluid and evolving. How for you does that relate to the idea of saying I am a Buddhist mm -hmm. versus saying Buddhism is a form of practice that I participate in and maybe I recommend and mm -hmm. enjoy? <laughs> um. Well, I'm often asked this question, and I think there's a lot of people who'd be perfectly happy if I didn't call myself a Buddhist. <laughs> but perhaps because of that, I do call myself a Buddhist. <laughs> uh, I, I think I would be deeply dishonest if I said I wasn't a Buddhist, because my whole life, uh, at least since the age of 19 has been steeped in the Buddhist tradition. I've done nothing else. Um, it's, it's the source of, of, of my whole, uh, my work, uh, everything. And I feel I have to acknowledge that. I'm also uncomfortable with the word Buddhism. I'm not very happy with that. It's a term that was only, uh, it, was, it was coined in the early 19th century. There's no equivalent word for Buddhism in Tibetan or Chinese or Pali. Um, one is a follower of the Dhamma or a follower of the Buddha. Um, and perhaps over time we might be able to evolve a language whereby we can jettison these ism words altogether and to think of oneself as a practitioner of the Dhamma. That is how I'd like to see it, really. Um, but I do think we need to acknowledge, or I feel I need to acknowledge, my indebtedness uh, to this tradition. And... Um, also, there is a sort of an idea in the West that we don't need these labels anymore. We don't, why do you labor yourself with this Buddhist label? Why don't you just drop it? And if you do so, then you'd be free to be yourself, as it were. But I think that's a, that's a, a mistake. I don't think, I think someone else mentioned this. If I were to drop the word Buddhist or Buddhism, essentially I would find myself as being described as a secular humanist, probably. Uh, I don't think you can ever step out of tradition. I think it's an egotistic illusion to think that you can live independently of tradition. Um, if you're, like, uh, secular humanism is probably the tradition that most non-religious people in the West would actually belong to, although even though they wouldn't declare themselves as such. And so I feel more comfortable, and I feel more honest to myself, and I also feel... Uh, uh, an ability to somehow uh, bring to other people through my writings and through my work um, the richnesses of the Buddhist tradition. And that is my vocation in this life. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, so uh, I generally have found myself in very much the same boat as the gentleman in front of me. And uh, I guess, you know, sort of beyond, beyond the question of identity and, and labels and stuff like that, um, I'm curious uh, what 
perhaps experience or at least ideas you may have about what a, a community a body of discourse, community of practice uh, around uh, around you know d- Buddhism could be, which sort of has perhaps a healthier relationship uh, in managing the tensions between uh, preser- uh, preserving uh, uh, the the value of you know what is sort of calcified within tradition versus uh, you know the the inherent necessity for individual reinterpretation and reimagination. So you're tr- what sort of community would best serve that purpose? Yeah, yeah, I'm curious if, mm. if there are waypoints that you've noticed or if Way, perhaps... Waypoints? Yeah, yeah, points of reference. If there, okay. if there are, I think, you know, perhaps communities uh, or bodies of discourse which, I, which you think uh, have, have managed this relation, this tension in a healthier way or which, you know, in, insofar as you've been thinking mm-hmm. about this, if you have ideas of what it would look mm-hmm. like. Um, well, first of all, I think one has to think of... I find it helpful to think of community not as something that you, you join or something that you find, but as something that you create. Right. Community, for me, is a practice. And it's a practice of basically forging and developing friendships and connections and relationships and actually working at that. Uh, there's a sense that uh, you, know, you, know, you join a Buddhist sangha and then you'll somehow experience community, not necessarily. Um, and I think I found it helpful following from uh, an idea I read in Martin Buber, the distinction between a collective and a community. A collective is a group of people who are bound together by a common ideology, and to be a part of that collective requires that you tow the party line. And if you depart from the party line, you're ejected from the group. That's a collective. A community, for me, is um, uh, a network or a set of friendships and relationships that serve the individuation of each member of the community. I don't see a conflict between becoming, as well, realizing one's potential as an individual and belonging to uh, and being an active and participant within a community. I think community lives through the nurturing and the development of relationships that helps each person, uh, in a way, realize their own potential and values and goals. And so I'm supported by the others in that community, and hopefully what I do can help support them. That would be my ideal. In practice, I think we, again, people ask me this all the time, you have to make use of what's available. It's like the raft analogy again. If you live in Idaho, in the middle of nowhere somewhere, and you're looking for a community, you take what's available. You, you, you look around and find what you can get. It might be that you join a Quaker group. It might be that you join some Buddhist group who you don't necessarily totally agree with in every respect. I don't think that matters. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be creative here, and if we can't find a community that suits us, create your own. In other words, you know, put a notice in your local health food store saying, my, with meditation at 6 o'clock every Thursday at my place, see what happens. So again, it's, 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 an, it's a work in progress. Yeah. And I can't define what would be more or less suited to that. I think each of us have to find our own way and be willing to you know, take risks, um, to recognize and accept that most or many communities are, are imperfect in some way. And, and just, you know, work on that. And, well, and beyond the, the question of institutionality and, and uh, mm. personal 
you know, collectivity. Um, what about the the sort of issue of discourse and how to how to communicate in a way which both preserves the knowledge and and also facilitates and, and encourages mm. this, this? Well, that again is, is a work in progress, and and I think I don't think the I don't think the Dharma will actually, uh, in a way, engage or enter into our society unless it can uh, find an idiom, a way of speech that is both truthful to the sources of the tradition, but also is speaking the language of our time. And that's, I think you can historically, that's what happened in Tibet, in China, everywhere Buddhism went. There was a period, usually of 100 or 200 years or more, before an indigenous form of the Dharma emerged in which there was the some sort of magical moment, a point where your discourse is rooted in the tradition and at the same time speaks in an authentic and lucid and engaged way in the idiom of your culture and your time. Kind of run out of time, but if it's quick. You, you mentioned something about, and I might be paraphrasing, empowering um, communities of practice to interpret the Dharma and to make it a living, mm-hmm. a living uh, a path or whatever for, for themselves. So how would you recommend the, the people in this room uh, use their experience and their power and their resources and energy to empower communities to keep things alive? And, you know, yeah, it's, it's an open question. Uh, one word answer, wisely <laughs> and compassionately. Maybe we have to end here. Thank you. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.